This morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is the story from Joseph's perspective this morning. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until after she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic story, The Scarlet Letter... The opening chapter sees the narrator rummaging through old documents in the run-down custom house of Salem, Massachusetts. This is the place where taxes were paid on imports in this seaside town. And he finds a piece of red cloth, worn and faded. He can tell there used to be gold embroidery on it, but none of the glitter was left anymore. As he holds up this tattered piece of cloth, he sees it is the capital letter A, exactly three and a quarter inches long. The narrator finds the roll of paper that's been twisted around the letter, which explains what it is and where it came from. This scarlet letter A had belonged to a Hester Prynne many years ago. The narrator goes on to spin a tale of this Hester Prynne who was forced by her town to wear a scarlet letter A as a sign of her shameful act of adultery. But when Prynne was sentenced by the town judges to wear this scarlet letter, the other women in town were not impressed. This sentence was far too light, far too gracious. One woman, 50 years old, she pipes up as the crowd gathers around the marketplace. And she says, ladies, it'd be much better for this town if we church-going women, like us, could deal with this adulterous Hester. Don't you think? If the five of us got to pass judgment on her, she wouldn't have gotten off as lightly. Another goes on. Well, the magistrates, they may be God-fearing men, but they are too merciful, and that is the truth. At the very least, they should have branded Hester Prince's forehead with a hot iron. Branded? 
scoffs another. This woman has brought shame to all of us. She ought to die. Isn't there a law that says so? There truly is in both the Bible and our town laws. And the magistrates will only have themselves to thank, having disregarded these laws, when they find out that their wives and daughters are sleeping around. Hawthorne was writing a work of fiction in the late 19th century. And he was telling a story about even earlier in the 17th century. But the setting of this story has a lot in common with the world of Mary and Joseph. Theirs was a world and a culture where reputations were built around shame and honor. And like Hester Prynne showing up to the town square pregnant with no husband in sight would have been an occasion for immense shame and public disgrace. A ruined reputation, to be sure. Mary's fate would have been similar to Hester's, cut off from her community, whispers behind her back left to raise a child on her own. And that is even a generous situation. Because the old law of Deuteronomy commanded that if an engaged woman like Mary, who lived in a town where neighbors could hear her cry for help, if she had intended to ward off this man, if a woman like that became pregnant, both the man and the woman should be stoned to death. Now, by the time Mary and Joseph came along, this law was hardly ever practiced literally anymore. People who had adulterous relationships were hardly ever stoned anymore. But that doesn't mean everything was a-okay The shame and the humiliation undoubtedly persisted. Mary's reputation would be ruined. There's no way around that. But Mary isn't the focus of this passage. Joseph is. This carpenter, this descendant from the great King David. And Matthew wants his readers to know that Joseph is a righteous Jewish man. He is a just man. For Matthew's Jewish readers, righteousness has to do with following God's law from the Torah. The kind of laws that brought judgment on women, the kind of laws like Deuteronomy that brought judgment on women found to be pregnant outside of marriage. Mary had undoubtedly tried to explain her situation to Joseph. But we can understand why he might be like less than open to hearing about this Holy Spirit conception. It was as believable then as it is now, which is to say it probably just sounded like a desperate excuse by someone caught in a shameful act. I mean, there was that prophecy from centuries ago, that, that old virgin giving birth business. But how many times had that been used as an excuse As a righteous Jewish man, Joseph is in a difficult situation. He is expected to do the right thing that's revealed in God's law, which even if that wouldn't mean Mary's death, it would surely mean severe and humiliating life for her. But he senses that the compassionate thing to do does not follow the letter of the law. 
Now, as Matthew's first Jewish readers hear Matthew retelling this story many years later after Jesus' life, they see their own situation in Jesus' Father. For them, Matthew's retelling is really less about the whole virgin birth business, and it is more about Matthew painting a picture of true discipleship. As first century Jewish disciples of Christ, these first hearers of Matthew see their own situation in Joseph, in this tension between his righteousness and his compassion for Mary. One commentator puts it this way, As Jewish Christians who had always reverenced the law, they sometimes found themselves torn between strict adherence to the letter of the Torah and the supreme demand of love, which their new faith in Jesus required of them. If they neglected the law, they were accused by others, maybe even accused by themselves of rejecting the Bible rejecting the tradition like the unrighteous people do. Like Joseph, they experienced that their own reputations as righteous and upright Torah followers were put in jeopardy by the demands of love and compassion. They could anticipate a crowd like the one that shows up in the scarlet letter showing up at Joseph's door saying it'd be much better if Torah-following people like us got to decide what happened with Mary, that Joseph is much too merciful. This woman has brought shame on us all, and she ought to die. Isn't there a law in the Torah that says so? Like Joseph, Matthew's first readers feel this pull between the law that they love, the law that they follow, and the compassionate response that comes from Jesus' own command. Their reputations as righteous people are at stake because a compassionate response could mean a ruined reputation. I think we can look at this righteous Jewish man, Joseph, and see something of our own situations, too. There are times when we feel this tension between righteousness and the demand of love or a pull toward compassion. I remember once in university, my husband Daniel and I were dating. We drove to Chicago to hear the symphony play. On the way home, it was dark and it was getting pretty late. The roads were mostly empty, though. And we were just about back to Grand Rapids when a black SUV went flying past us. And then out of nowhere, kind of started to swerve and lost control and then like rolled over a few times before finally coming to a crushing stop in the ditch. Daniel slowed down, pulled over to the side of the road, and I got out my flip phone to call 911. No sooner had we pulled over than the driver of the SUV jumped out of her car unharmed and ran across the highway to our car. She said, don't call the police. Please, please don't call the police. We could smell the alcohol on her breath. Don't call the police. She pleaded with us, I'm going to school to be a teacher. And if this gets on my record, I will never get a job as a teacher. Please just let me call my friend instead. I froze. 
with my phone in my hand as we tried to calm her down, tried to talk to her. She was completely panicked and I was frozen. Now, someone coming from the opposite direction had seen all of this happen and called 911. So the police and ambulance did eventually arrive and she did end up going to court. But I remember that feeling of being frozen between what I knew was the right thing to do and her crying, her begging us to not call the police, to not turn her in. That was a pretty short and intense experience. And it was over before I really could reflect on what was happening. But you all may be able to relate to Joseph's experience in a more prolonged kind of way, especially when it comes to how we experience very hot-button issues that the church has historically held very black and white kinds of thinking. Situations kind of like Mary's, where someone gets pregnant outside of marriage. Or if you know someone, or if you yourself have gone through a divorce. Or if you've been put under any kind of disciplinary measures at work or at school. There can be shame associated with those things. And there is a sad and predictable testimony from folks who go through situations like this, that when they needed their church family the most, they felt abandoned and shamed instead. Now, when any of these things happen from a distance, it's very easy to say, well, this is what's right. This is what the Bible says. But the tension sets in when it hits closer to home, and we feel this pull between what we think God's law requires of us and the supreme demand of love that our faith in Jesus Christ requires of us. Which will be seen as the more Christian response? Which will be seen as taking the Bible more seriously? After all, they're both in there. Might we also fear that to act out of compassion will give us a reputation of not taking the Bible seriously enough? Of being too wishy-washy or soft? Of being too worldly and not righteous? We might even come to expect that people will start to disparage our own reputations as good Bible-believing Christians when we lean away from the letter of the law and in the direction of compassion. Now, in Joseph's story, we see that God turns this righteous man into, into a conduit of God's promise through his acts of compassion. Matthew's account of Jesus' birth communicates to his first readers, those followers of Jesus who were feeling pulled between the law and by compassion, that Jesus' own life, as he grew inside Mary's body, was in the first instance spared because of Joseph's compassionate application of the law. A righteous Jewish man will spare his fiancée from judicial punishment and from public shame at the expense of his own reputation as a righteous, God-fearing man. He would quietly break off the engagement without publicly shaming Mary. 
For Matthew's first readers, that was a radical statement about what it really means to be a righteous person. But then God takes it even one step further. It was not enough that righteous Joseph would spare Mary and her baby. God tells Joseph to fully embrace Mary and this child. God replaces Joseph's fear of a ruined reputation with joy in being a conduit of God's grace and mercy. God's messenger comes to Joseph in a dream. I picture him finally falling asleep after hours of fitful tossing and turning, those echoes of his conversation with Mary playing in his mind, feelings of betrayal, disbelief, and sadness finally mercifully giving way to sleep. Joseph, son of David, he dreams. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. God reveals his big plan of salvation to Joseph in order that Joseph could move from compassion to courage as he embraced the part he would play in God's big story. Now for Matthew's Jewish audience, it was a big deal that God's promised Messiah would come from the line of King David. God had long ago promised an heir to David's throne. He had long ago promised that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And now that whole Davidic lineage, that whole Davidic kingdom depends on Joseph, this son of David, attending to the living voice of God and setting aside his fear of a ruined reputation. David's eternal kingdom now rests in the hands of a righteous Jewish man who lives at the heart of the law and not its letter who is already living out the new and higher righteousness that his son Jesus would preach about. God replaces Joseph's fear of a ruined reputation with joy in being a conduit of God's promise. It is through his lineage that this child would be adopted into the line of David. God empowers Joseph to let go of his fear of a ruined reputation to embrace the unbelievable, supernatural, miraculous provisions of God and the birth of this child. It would be Jesus who would save his people from their sins, not their own righteousness or adherence to the law. It would be Jesus who would fulfill all of those righteous requirements of the law and in do so, save his people from shame, from guilt, from punishment. Jesus himself would bear the shame, would bear the guilt and the punishment that the law prescribes so that anyone who follows him can live out this new and higher righteousness of the eternal kingdom of David. It's like our Advent candle reading this morning said, for the joy set before him. He came down to earth and took on our humanity. He endured the cross with all its shame. 
and sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. It's as if every scarlet letter ever sewn on a person has been taken up by Christ and buried with him in his death so that shame can die and joy can be reborn through the work of Jesus Christ. There was this girl in my high school who became pregnant. I think we were in grade 10 or 11. And I went to a Christian high school in a pretty conservative town, so teen pregnancies were something of a scandal. The girl became the topic of hurtful rumors, controversy within the school itself. But my one Bible teacher reacted differently. He wrote the girl and her boyfriend a letter with $20 inside. And the letter said, Go have dinner together and celebrate this little life. Now, did this Bible teacher fear for his reputation? Did he fear that he would be seen as encouraging or endorsing this kind of behavior in young people? I mean, I guess it's possible he felt that way, but it sure didn't seem like it. He was openly and unapologetically loving and compassionate toward them. This, I think, is evidence of the same God at work, replacing fear of a ruined reputation with joy at being a conduit of God's mercy and God's promises. Now, of course, that situation is not an exact correspondence to Mary's situation. There is no claim of a Holy Spirit conception, for example. But the Bible teacher's response was empowered by that same God who sent the messenger to Joseph in his fitful sleep. Do not be afraid of a ruined reputation. Do not be afraid of extending mercy and compassion. Do not be afraid as being seen as too unrighteous, as too wishy-washy, because there is joy to be had in being that conduit of God's mercy and God's promises. The little one growing inside this young and vulnerable Mary would fulfill the law and has opened the way for the eternal kingdom where shame and condemnation can die, where hope, where love, where peace and joy can be born. Let all the earth receive this king, a king born of a virgin and adopted by Joseph into the eternal line of David, a king who is our savior, a king who is God with us, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this gift of your word. Help us to believe what we've heard and to hear it in all its wild, miraculous, and scandalous origins. Help us to live in ways that honor you. Help us to live in ways that honor your kingdom of hope, love, peace, and joy. Help us to live in ways that resist fear and shame and give us joy as we seek to be conduits of your mercy and compassion so that all those around us will be drawn more and more to the light of your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.